Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a May 20th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are now providing twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are, describe immunology factors important in handling viral illness, review vaccines for coronavirus, potential barriers, as well as vaccine development accelerators, and understand the case definition for COVID-19 multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you for your time, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. Um, and I want to remind everyone this program is only available through the generous support of DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Please see covid19.dkbmed.com for additional resources and educational activities. As we move through the month of May, there is some sense of maybe, shall I say, almost optimism at times on a number of fronts, uh, medical, social, and economic, that I hope uh, will come to bear as the summer months come on. And I wanted to spend some time because I think the next few months will be especially preoccupied in the news with updates on how the vaccine for the novel coronavirus is progressing on so many fronts. So as many of you know, because we didn't, ha we still don't have a therapeutic tool to treat patients, even though remdesivir is there, we don't quite know how well it works. It may only be modest, at least for hospitalized patients. And social distancing clearly has had an effect when it's been performed accurately. But immunization, of course, is the great hope here. And if we can sufficiently immunize people, we'll certainly develop herd immunity, as it were, that uh, will help limit further spread and uh, allow us to get closer to what we think uh, our normal lives were previously. So a little bit of a primer without going too deep into this might be helpful for you to help evaluate how these vaccines are being developed and also which ones might actually turn to bear as being effective or more effective than others. A little bit like a horse race and I'll I'll get into that in a moment. Most of you know that the immune responses to this coronavirus, initially any infection, whether it be a bacteria, fungus, or even a virus, will trigger what's called innate immunity. Uh, think of this as uh, some molecules interacting with the 
uh, frontline sentries of the immune system. And finally, they will alarm and ring a danger signal. This is a very blunt response. But Really what vaccines we're most interested in is the so-called adaptive responses. These are generated uh, by B cells that go on and make antibodies or T cells that can either go and help kill virus infected cells or help coordinate the immune system to eradicate the infection and hopefully have uh, some durable responses as well. Typically the innate immune responses are first alarmed in the first few days of infection, and at least with many viral infections by days 7 through 14 and 21, after onset of symptoms, you are really turning the adaptive system to 4. So what do we know about COVID-19 immunity? Now, there's been so much in the news about antibody tests and are they reliable? What do they actually tell you? Uh, certainly, I, I think depending on the quality of the test and whether it's been clinically validated sufficiently, it could tell you probably to a reasonable degree if you've been exposed. Uh, I think one of the questions really are the antibody responses that are generated are they the kind, though, uh, that will help prevent reinfection? And people might say, well, of course, if you have antibodies, you're not going to get reinfected. Well, if you think about it, people can get influenza every year, yet still have some measurable antibodies that are not fully protective. Now, you may not get as severe an illness, but you can still acquire the infection and, and perhaps even transmit it. So I think these are the questions. And also, even after you recover, if you unfortunately have had the coronavirus infection, how long does that immune response last? Because at least some indications from SARS-1 even MERS-CoV, and of course the uh, coronaviruses that cause regular uh, respiratory infections, uh, it's not a long-lived immunity, we think, like measles for most people. However, there is some good news. A recent paper published in Nature Medicine closely looked at a cohort of 285 patients who had severe COVID disease. So these were people that needed oxygen, they were hospitalized, and it looked like most people indeed developed antibodies by their third week of illness. The so-called IgM antibodies, these are the early phase antibodies. IgG appeared to come later. And of course, this is what there's often a lot of focus in terms of durable immunity and whether so-called neutralizing antibodies are present. So, a lot of the vaccine manufacturers have uh, been very preoccupied with a certain protein on the coronavirus called the S protein or spike protein. Some people have said the vaccine manufacturers are very spikocentric. They're really focused on this particular molecule, in part because during the first SARS coronavirus 1 outbreak, it did appear that neutralizing antibodies uh, were made against this S or spike protein in that coronavirus. So I think it's naturally there's been this focus. There are also other proteins uh, that are part of the inner part of the uh, virus, the nucleocapsid, or embedded into the membrane or envelope as well. So this is a trimeric protein uh, that's folded together. And the idea, of course, are are you generating antibodies, so-called spike 
antibodies or specific to the coronavirus that would bind to the virus and or interfere with that virus's ability to then bind into the ACE2 receptors and enter the host cell. So there are 90, perhaps now over 100 candidates, and indeed, it's very interesting because there have been so many approaches. I thought I would just hit on a few just to let you know the real breadth of this kind of vaccinology research. If you look at the overall menu of vaccines over the years that have been developed and then come to market, to be proven efficacious and safe, it's estimated that only about 16% of vaccine candidates actually reach market. And, you know, this is maybe just marginally higher than uh, drugs that enter clinical phases of investigation. So this is uh, really a high-risk kind of enterprise and by no means guaranteed. And a lot about this virus has surprised us. So although our hopes are up, uh, I would say just given the intensive efforts by many governments and private industry, we're still not exactly guaranteed that this will come to bear. So, for example, one is uh, using a, a weakened viral vector, meaning something that we know something about, like measles virus, and then inserting a spike protein into that weakened virus. You give it to the person, the virus replicates, and it also manufactures the spike protein, of course, without actually causing a serious viral infection and develop uh, antibodies. So this is one method, could be a number of viruses, and it has been used for the newly approved Ebola vaccine, which has proven successful for helping uh, do ring immunization practices and try to uh, corral the Ebola outbreak that's currently, uh, that had been underway earlier in the Democratic Republic of Congo and other areas. Another approach is the so-called non-replicating viral vector. So this is, again, uses a virus, uh, but this virus isn't meant to really reproduce within the body, but does encode information such that the genes themselves will be slurped up and sort of integrated into cells or at least uh, manufactured uh, proteins so that you develop an antibody response. Uh, adenoviruses are what's been used, and this has been used for gene therapy. And there has not been to date an infectious disease vaccine that has used this technique. But there are others yet, and I'll, I'll leave the Moderna one for a moment. Uh, but DNA molecules, so-called plasmids, have been constructed, again, with the spike protein by Inovia. And this is one that uses a gun to inject this. And therefore, the plasmid, again, is hopefully slurped up by cells. Uh, it's transcribed and proteins are made and you get an immune response. You see the CanSino Biologics, which again uses the adenovirus vector, which is something we talked about in the last slide. Another approach is used a retroviral vector, so-called lentivirus, by the Shenzhen Medical Institute there. But again, the principles are very similar in the sense that it uses the constructed virus with the protein injected and also uh, with some infusions, perhaps, uh, in order to both get responses slightly different, uh, including T cells and dendritic cells. So this is a different approach rather than one that's really targeting only or the emphasis is for neutralizing antibodies. The Sinovac vaccine is a very old-fashioned approach here that's in the lower right-hand corner, and that's where the virus is simply grown up, 
It goes under an activation protocol, much like influenza virus is grown up in eggs and activated and then injected to develop immune responses, hopefully with not disturbing the protein structures too much to get appropriate responses. So that also is in progress right now. The Moderna one, which has been in the news, is a novel one. There's been no such vaccine before, but this is where message RNA is injected. And again, in that message is the spike protein, and this protein is uh, taken up by cells and then uh, synthesized in much the same way uh, a virus would do it, but it's without the whole kind of viral apparatus. Now, as I mentioned, there's been so much emphasis on spike proteins and uh, antibody generation, but a, a very recent paper just published uh, earlier this week in Cell I thought was highly interesting. And that's looked at a group of people that um, recovered from the coronavirus and found that certain what are called epitope pools, think of them similar like antibodies, but for T cells that are very specific to this coronavirus. And they found that most patients uh, develop CD4 and so-called helper cells and CD8 cells as part of their recovery. And these T cell responses were not only focused on the spike protein, but also had very strong responses to other proteins made by the virus, including MN and others in what are called open reading frames. So one of the thoughts are that a successful virus response uh, from a vaccine might not just make neutralizing antibodies, which has been such a focus, but perhaps uh, you may throw in some of these proteins in hopes of engendering T cell responses that might give you a better response. So. This week, there's been a lot of press and indeed optimism. Uh, the stock market went up, it, it is said. Uh, because of this announcement of this mRNA vaccine by M Moderna, I, I think many of us have given some pause, though, because much like remdesivir, we only have a press release. Now, everyone's very hungry for information, um, but I would just tell people to hit the pause button because this is the first phase of vaccine manufacture, uh, phase one, and we really have very limited information. But what the press release said was that of 46 patients, some got so-called low dose or a higher dose of the mRNA. They did develop antibody responses, but we are told that only eight developed so-called neutralizing antibodies. This, these are tests where you need to be in a BSL-3 lab. You actually test the antibodies to see if they actually help neutralize the virus from killing uh, cells and tissue culture. It's sort of the gold standard for uh, antibodies. These are the kinds you would like against a, a, a viral infection. So we really have very limited information. This is a new vaccine approach in humans. Uh, we don't have any safety data yet. In fact, we don't have any information on who these volunteers were. Were they young? Were they old? Were the responses uniform? But interestingly, uh, they are jumping ahead, passing through phase two to phase three, uh, with this announcement, they're going to trial this in over 30,000 people. That's quite a large number. I think it's highly interesting. Remember, to really uh, prove safety, you'll want to test the vaccine a large number of patients. So this is very good. Um, in terms of efficacy, uh, you'll want to make sure that these participants are potentially exposed to the virus to prove that you're actually preventing infection compared to people that did got a sham 
vaccine, for for example, and so on. So um, it's always hard to prove efficacy sometimes, uh, unless if you have vast numbers of people, because you'll want to make sure there's circulating virus and everyone's trying to avoid getting the virus, of course. So it'll be interesting to see how the efficacy side of this uh, moves ahead. But until we see more information, I wouldn't say there's a cause for unbridled optimism at present. And this uh, phase three trial is supposed to start in July. Uh, another approach though, uh, besides just sort of jumping ahead to a very large phase three trial, which is one of the thoughts um, that the WHO and even the NIH and the CDC said that hopefully we'll get a vaccine in 12 to 18 months is something called the human viral challenge. And one of the problems with uh, studies such as phase three is to prove the efficacy, people have to be exposed to the virus and have it prevented. And people that didn't get the vaccine still get the illness to prove that it works. The human challenge model is different. Some people have questioned whether it is ethical, but this can significantly shorten the time frame if people are intentionally exposed to the virus after they've been able to mount an antibody response for a couple months. So they're challenged with the virus to see if there's protection. The advantage is there. You can test the vaccine in a much smaller number of people. You can see if it truly works and then sort of roll it out in much larger phases to phase three, sort of the reverse where, you know, you've already determined if it's efficacious, now you're looking for safety. Whereas the, the other way, you're sort of determining safety and efficacy at the same time. And it's a way that might really winnow down. If you have 90 or 100 candidates, it's gonna be very hard to do, you know, 70, 30,000 person vaccine studies well, and so on. So this is something that's being proposed and discussed, um, but unfortunately a lot of the uh, vaccine coordination is not at the kind of high level that involves multiple countries. So we'll see how this more fragmented uh, approach goes. In the closing minutes, I just wanted to briefly discuss uh, the interesting twists that the coronavirus still proceeds on many facets we're still learning about. We've always thought children and uh, teenagers, for example, uh, really are not prone to getting severe illness. You could sort of see that of the total cases, and I'm not sure we're looking very hard at children, a very low percentage of total cases are coronavirus in many countries. And uh, the largest pediatric study I know of was done in China, a little over 2,000 patients. And you could see there that most patients had very mild illness and only uh, really five to 6% had severe or critical illness. So uh, overall, a, a different picture than we tend to see, of course, in older patients or with comorbidities. But what has gotten everyone's attention are reports uh, that were not only in France, but uh, I think the sheer number of children over 100 who were reported uh, in New York City who became ill really caught people's attention. And they seem to present with a Kawasaki syndrome-like illness, sort of multiple problems, rashes, high fevers, uh, perhaps cardiac dysfunction, and so on. And it, it was interesting in that most of these uh, children uh, no longer had evidence of COVID-19, but had positive antibodies, meaning they probably had an infection a month earlier or six weeks earlier 
earlier. Uh, so we may be seeing more of this as kind of delayed response, maybe an abnormal immune response that we do sometimes see with certain viral infections, uh, acute demyelinating encephalitis. Encephalomyelitis is one such condition that's sort of a post-infectious consequence. So it may be a delayed reaction here. Uh, the definition, uh, which some people have called the COVID-19 inflammatory syndrome in children, others have called it the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C. So it's for you know young adults, teenagers, and children with fever and evidence of inflammation. So you know high sedimentation rate, ferritin, and so on. Multi-system illness, meaning that it's targeting not just the lung. Uh, but uh, other organs, no conceivable other diagnosis, and at least some evidence either of a positive PCR assay, although most of these children don't have it, or um, by history at least, if they don't have it at that time, but really probably more that the serology is positive, suggestive of recent infection. So much more to be learned about the pathogenesis and whether some of the treatments, for example, that Kawasaki syndrome uses like intravenous uh, immune globulin or other immunomodulators uh, may be useful here, remains to be played out, but it seems to be a rare problem overall, but uh, Again, it's uh, interesting that even children that aren't at risk for severe health problems may, may have issues. So uh, Faith, I think we have time for some questions. Thank you for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another. Okay, Dr. Allwater, first question. Why are nasal swabs for COVID-19 still being done if a saliva test is a better look at the lower respiratory tract? The saliva test has equal reliability to the nasal swab test, and when the nasal swab test is extremely uncomfortable compared to a saliva test. Yeah, so I think because the nasopharyngeal swab is sort of the respiratory gold standard, it's been used for influenza for a long time and other respiratory viruses, I think a lot of institutions are very comfortable with this approach. People have been trained, the systems have been validated, and so on. The saliva tests uh, do require that uh, institutions validate studies to make sure that it's as reliable or commercial labs. So I think until that sure comes on board and is much more reliable, uh, this is something that still is not widespread, but I think will replace the NP swab, at least for COVID-19. Now, I will say as we move into the respiratory season in the fall, I think we'll be back to the NP swab because you'll have to look for influenza and respiratory syncytial virus as well. Um, I'll also mention it's clear that for COVID at least, the coronavirus, lower respiratory secretions have somewhat better yield, it seems, but many institutions haven't validated so-called sputum tests. Uh, we have at Johns Hopkins, a few other places have as well, um, but uh, so we're left with the NP swab um, in, in many areas. Okay, thank you. Next question. Is there any consensus about antibody testing, such as which test is reliable and what the utility of antibody testing is? Yeah, so I'm not sure there's a consensus. Clearly, some tests 
um, have been clinically validated with higher numbers and uh, look more accurate. I, I do think whatever lab you're using for this, you want to be very sure um, that it's uh, using a reliable test. So, uh, you know, for me, I think if you see a positive value and you know someone's had a, a COVID-19 type illness, you know, I think it can give you some accurate information. Where people have been a little hesitant is understanding, are people generating the kind of protective antibody responses? I think in all likelihood they are, or if they were to reacquire the illness, it probably wouldn't be as severe. But we don't yet have the ability to say that a certain test uh, means that people will be completely protected, partially protected, and so on. And uh, that's only going to come with more experience. No tests I know of have been uh, recommended uh, by any guideline authorities yet. Great, thank you. Our next learner question, is there any possible association between vitamin D deficiency and COVID-19 as hypothesized recently? Well, I, you know, this is an interesting area because, I, you know, I still do a little bit of internal medicine and patients often have low vitamin D levels. Um, I think this will need to play out a bit more. People as they age often have lower vitamin D levels, whether it's truly a deficiency is hotly debated, I think, amongst many endocrinologists. So stay tuned. I certainly wouldn't take extra vitamin D at this stage. Uh, a lot of these kind of associations are uh, being worked out. So, you know, I think it's too early to, to give you much information on that. Okay, thank you. And this is our last question. The CDC announced the childhood vaccinations are down significantly based on purchasing data. Should all routine vaccinations, including the shingles vaccine, be carried out on schedule regardless of local COVID-19 activity? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there is a risk now if children are not back in school and so on, I think the risks um, or daycare, the risks are not as high. Uh, but this is going to lead to a backlog. I mean, for adults, many offices yet aren't fully open. I think when they do, uh, it's, uh, I'm a big fan of immunizations, including the shingles vaccine. And of course, that's not a pediatric vaccine. That's for uh, adults over the age of 50. You know, I, I think we should play catch up on that. I think the, the message here is that because offices have been closed, don't forget about where your children are in the vaccine schedule, and some of them will have to have some makeups performed, so that just shouldn't be lost. Great, thank you. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any question or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you again, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith, and uh, as always, everyone, stay he healthy and safe, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you.